Welcome to Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is the Andrew Lawton Show, brought to you by True North. Coming up, the Conservative Leadership Series continues. My conversation with Carlton MP and Conservative Leadership candidate Pierre Poilievre. The Andrew Lawton Show starts right now. Greetings and good day. This is Canada's most irreverent talk show, The Andrew Lawton Show, here on True North. We have always prided ourselves on this program and on this network, on this platform, True North, of covering conservative politics, and I say conservative with a small c there, in a way that matters to the people that identify as being on the right, or at the very least have an open mind about understanding what these parties and politicians are all about. And it's along that vein that we decided to bring to you the Conservative Leadership Series, talking about issues that matter to the people who are going to be selecting the Conservative Party of Canada's next leader, and also people that are more broadly in the conservative movement in this country. And we've had a number of these conversations so far, and we're going to have all six candidates profiled by the time the series is over. And it's my great pleasure to introduce the next installment of that series today, my conversation with Carleton Member of Parliament and Conservative Leadership Candidate Pierre Polyev, who was the first one to enter the race almost immediately after it was announced. And a little bit's changed since then. We spoke to him in the early days, but now now that we're a little further along in the race, we've got a bit more of a sense of policy, the dynamics, and also what's been at times a little bit of tension in the race on the debate stage and off. We talk about all that and more in my conversation with Pierre Polyev. Carlton MP Pierre Polyev. Pierre, thanks for sitting down with me today. Thanks for having me. You were the first candidate in this race. You came out and we spoke not long after you launched. But looking back on it, the field's gotten a bit more crowded now. You've become presented as, as the front runner and as a result, you've certainly got your punches uh, that have been lobbed towards you. But just looking back at your time in the race, how are you feeling about it so far? Nothing has changed. Uh, the message that I launched when I announced my plan to run for prime minister is the same one I'm running on now. I want to give people back control of their life make this the freest country on earth. Um, I'm campaigning on economic freedom, letting people control their money, uh, have more freedom to start businesses, hire, serve, serve customers. I'm running on personal freedom like uh, medical choice on vaccines, I'm running on uh, sound money and uh, fiscal conservatism to get our budget balanced and get inflation under control. So those are the, the things I announced when I first ran and really I haven't changed any of those things. When you talk about your entry into this race, everyone saw the footage from your uh, rallies that you had early on over the course of several months, thousands and thousands of people out, especially in Calgary and Edmonton and, and even areas where the Conservatives haven't done as well in the last couple of elections, you know, my city of, of London. When you look at the turnout there, what do you attribute that to? Is, is there a particular demographic you saw? Is it just, you know, people that haven't had anything to do in the last two years? Is it a, an ideological cross-section? Who are those people? They're people who feel like they've lost control of their lives. Uh, they are disproportionately young uh, because I think the youth suffered the most because of government overreach during the pandemic. Uh, they weren't able to do the things that kids love to do, you know, go out to the, to the gym, uh, to a nightclub, go on a date, uh, do some travel. Those are the things young people do by nature. Uh, and uh, two, for two years, governments repressed that. 
And so the message of freedom was particularly powerful and motivating for them. Um, but we had a lot of blue collar people. You know, we traditionally associate the conservatives with being the party of, of business people, folks wearing suits and ties. But uh, my rallies have had more boots than suits. Uh, lots of working class folks uh, who have been demolished during the pandemic had no one to had had few uh, voices speaking on their behalf, and they were they found it refreshing that someone was finally standing up for them for their purchasing power of their money, for their their personal freedom to make their own decisions, uh, to get back in control of their lives, and to to, to have free freedom of speech, uh, which is more precious to uh, working class people these days because they don't get. Uh, their voice heard by the traditional mainstream media, uh, and that's why they, they more cherish the, the ability to speak freely and hear from others who do likewise. When you talk about independent media, you, you've established that you want to get rid of the, the Trudeau government's media bailouts, you want to defund the CBC. We heard in the last leadership election, uh, Aaron O'Toole say that he was going to defund the CBC, and, and during the election that had been walked back to really an, an unrecognizable point in, in the party's platform. Specifically, what will you do with CBC in your first mandate? Well, I will defund it to no, save a billion dollars. Uh, to save a billion dollars, I think the the... The only uh, justification for a broadcaster, a public broadcaster, would be to fulfill uh, what the market can't provide. Almost everything the CBC does can be done in the marketplace these days because of technology. Um, I would preserve a small amount for French language minorities, uh, for linguistic minorities, uh, because they um, frankly, will not get uh, news services provided by the market, and you know we have a gigantic sea of English in North America, uh, and only a small uh, population, a francophone population. So I think there is a justification uh, because government really should only do what people cannot do for themselves, and that's the justification for for uh, leaving a small part of, of the budget. Uh, that currently is well over a billion dollars for the over CB, for the CBC to provide for those things that the market is not doing for itself. So the national power in politics, CBC News Online, no funding for those under a Polyev government. Yeah, I don't think that the television service, the English language television service that CBC provides, uh, or the digital, uh, provide anything that people can't get from the marketplace. Uh, so let's uh, let, let's do, government should only do what people can't do for themselves, and almost everything English language CBC does is already available. There, there are coverage of American politics, which is is so overwhelming. Even though we have nobody in Canada has ever said, "Geez, we can't get enough news about the U.S." Right? True. <laughs> Where you stand in the political spectrum, I've never met a Canadian who says, "Geez, it's really hard to find out what's going on in Washington." And but, and when you listen to CBC's coverage of American politics, it's never through a so-called Canadian lens. They always say, "Well, we need it because we need to have a, a separate Canadian viewpoint of what's happening." And what most of the time, they don't even mention Canada. Uh, they basically report what you could plagiarize from MSNBC or CNN. 
uh, which Canadians can get online already. So why we're spending a billion dollars to subsidize things that we can get from the marketplace, I, I've never understood. I know on the related topic of, of media more broadly, we have the government right now pushing through this monumental regulatory expansion to control the internet. And this has a lot of independent publishers, whether it's outlets like True North or YouTube streamers like JJ McAuliffe, very concerned about this. And I, I know you've been critical of C11, but more broadly, do you see there as being a big assault from this government on independent media and on free speech? Yeah, so here's the agenda. Trudeau gets um, nearly universally positive coverage from the old mainstream media. Uh, they were campaigned hard to get him elected as prime minister, and he's hoping that they will continue to be the predominant voice uh, on Canadian politics, not only to support his career, but his legacy. And I think that's why he is trying to pass legislation that would um, re-establish re a small, tightly knit group of um, news outlets that would be able to report on what happens. Uh, rather than having a wide open free market where folks can choose through the clicks of their fingers, uh, rather than the cliques uh, on Parliament Hill, what they watch. Um, so that's what C11 does. It effectively gives the CRTC the ability to manipulate the algorithms of the internet to favor certain coverage over others. They have not been clear on how they define Canadian content, for example. Supposedly this bill is to protect Canadian content. We don't know what, and the government won't tell us what Canadian content is. Uh, is it, uh, you know, is it maple syrup? Uh, is it the Canadian geese? It, what 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 constitutes Canadian? Uh, you know, for example, I met a young man who moved here from India, became a permanent resident, and did a, a YouTube series of traveling across Canada. Apparently, it was a big hit back back in India. Well, he's in Canada. He's becoming a Canadian citizen. He shopped. All the sites are in Canada, but he's just a permanent resident. So, would the CRTC consider that to be Canadian content? I mean, nobody knows. I doubt if you ask them, they could tell you because they haven't decided. They have, I, you know, they haven't been able to explain it. So, what you're going to have is an arbitrary discretion of bureaucrats saying that's Canadian and that's not. Uh, and ultimately, we know that will be rife for, for political abuse. So my view is leave the marketplace open, let people choose what they want to watch. Can, we have 37 million Canadian content regulators, they're called citizens. Let them choose for themselves. When it comes to independent media, you're sitting down with me today and you, you've spoken to us previously, which we appreciate, but you declined to attend the independent press gallery debate and the, your team at the time said it was because you were selling memberships. But then after the membership cutoff, you also declined to do the Western Standard debate and, and were the only candidate to do so. So for conservatives who often feel that independent media is the only way to really get content that's not through these media lenses, what are they to make of, of you not doing these two pretty significant independent media events? Well, for, first of all, I did. We did three debates and a candidate forum already, so that is a lot of debating. And we decided that we were going to spend most of our time in direct contact with voters on the ground. Uh, and uh, the strong and free debate uh, was uh, moderated by independent media voices, including your your own Candace Malcolm uh, and Jamil Giovanni. So they did have a stage. I frankly would not have picked Tom Clark to do the English language debate. I don't know what the party was thinking when they picked him. He obviously is not um, friendly to the Conservative Party, uh, but the party picked him for their own reasons to moderate the Edmonton English language debate. Uh, I think that uh, we should have probably picked it. We should have picked someone either from the independent media or someone who was 
uh, a non-aligned uh, conservative that had not backed any particular candidate. But we had four debates. I'm confident that I won them. And uh, I know the other candidates, uh, they want, uh, they're having a hard time getting crowds of their own. And uh, so they're struggling with that. But uh, we have, we continue to attract big crowds who hear my voice directly. And that's what I'm going to continue sharing with them. What would the access look like under a Polyev government for independent media? Because this has been a big issue with when you talk about gatekeepers, the parliamentary yeah. press gallery are really the media gatekeepers. Yeah. Well, I'd like to know more about that from you. Like, are you able to come onto the precinct and, and report? Right it depends. I mean, okay. for, for a journalist that's not a member of the PPG, you're at the mercy of them to give you a day pass. Right. And, and that's something you need to go through every single time you engage in that process. And what about press conferences? Like, do, you, do they let so you the, call I mean, in? The Prime Minister's office has a, a complete no-go for True North, and I'm assuming other similar organizations right. at its press conferences. In the, the debates, we've had to, uh, in 2019, sue our way in. In 2021, we were fortunate. But the, pr the problem is, is that you have a very inconsistent approach right. that right now is from a government that has decided it only wants its, its invitees there. So that's why I'm putting it on you as a prospective prime minister. What would you set out as the terms for journalists, and, and not just right-leaning journalists, but for all non-PPG journalists to cover your campaign? Yeah, listen, I think that uh, I'm here today talking with you. I haven't been doing a lot of sit-downs with the traditional media because uh, I, I find that they uh, the, the, the point of uh, my campaign is to get out of the Ottawa bubble and talking to normal people. I find that the, the independent media is a good way to reach a lot of folks who don't feel that their voice is heard in the press gallery. I think that uh, all journalists should have equal access to the parliamentary precinct and that there should be an independent way to verify whether someone is in fact working in journalism because obviously you can't just have some guy who's a, a protester or someone come in and use a, invent a phony media pass, but there should be a way to allow uh, non-aligned um, independent media the same access to the parliamentary precinct as everyone else. We should remove the gatekeepers. You, um, the, the reality is that the press gallery doesn't own Parliament Hill, um, nor does the CBC or any particular news outlet. It is owned by the people of Canada equally, all 37 million of them. And all of the media voices should have equal access to cover events on the precinct and around politics. You mentioned earlier your opposition to vaccine mandates. I know in the, the Edmonton debate, Leslie Lewis accused you of being a convoy supporter of convenience. I, I think she had said that you, you weren't actually on Parliament Hill or it was something to that effect. You have spoken out against vaccine mandates, but in the last election, the Conservatives were relatively silent on this as a party, certainly from, from the leadership. So for Canadians who have been struggling with this issue since the very beginning, and I think a lot of them voted for the People's Party in the last election, we, we saw a surge there. Where, when, when did you start caring about this issue and when did you first speak out about it? Well, I spoke out about it in the first week after Trudeau announced it. I, my, those are my first public comments. I think uh, in the local newspaper in my riding, and uh, I think that I think if I'm not mistaken, it was around July of uh, just before the elections. You remember, there was no federal vaccine mandate until day two or three of the federal election when Trudeau suddenly reversed himself, mm -hmm. having earlier said that it would be a matter of personal choice. But as soon as he flip-flopped on that, I took the position that it should be voluntary, and I defended that position, including in my Ottawa riding at Ottawa area candidate debates, even though uh, if you look at the polling at the, at the early stages, mandates were quite popular. Um, and I defended the right of public servants to make their own decisions on that 
throughout. Um, and uh, as for the, the, the convoy, I mean, I showed up at the overpass uh, in the west part of my riding to support the convoy driving in, and then I showed up on Parliament Hill uh, and uh, met with peaceful protesters uh, who were on site there as well. So um, the irony was that in the debate where Dr. Lewis criticized me for that, um, the same debate, Joshua Ray was criticizing me for saying that, saying that I was too supportive <laughs> of the convoy. So people have to decide what, what their criticism of me is on this. You had about 20 of your conservative uh, colleagues in caucus meet uh, James Tom, yeah. the veteran marching across Canada uh, to protest vaccine mandates in yeah. Ottawa. Where were you? Well, I, I reached out to try and connect with him because I wasn't able to be at that particular meeting. I gather he's coming back to Parliament Hill um, as he defin finishes the walk from, he's somewhere around Toronto or Belleville now, and I'm happy to connect with him when he comes back to Ottawa. We weren't able to line up schedules uh, when he was there. So you're not against meeting with uh, Mr. Topp? No, not at all. Look, I think we have to be able to meet with, uh, with people of all different uh, stripes and different backgrounds. This man has come a long way uh, to make a point. Uh, the, for me, the point of free choice is what I agree with. I, don't, I personally got vaccinated, um, but I respect the right of other people to make a contrary decision. And I think that, that, as I understand it, is the cause that he's advancing, and it's one that I support. We have record levels of inflation. You and I actually spoke about this in, during the, the election campaign in your riding, and it was swelteringly hot, so I'm glad we're inside today. But let me ask about this, because you, you were the finance critic. You, you know that Canadians have been struggling with this. And, and in a lot of ways, it only was when Statistics Canada started giving the numbers that I think some of the media paid attention to what Canadians were seeing at the grocery store. We heard the Justin Trudeau say that it's not his job to think about monetary policy, but Canadians are struggling. So what solution could you bring beyond firing the Bank of Canada governor yeah. to inflation, to this insane cost of living crisis on multiple fronts? Right. Well, there are a number of solutions. First, we should get rid of the carbon tax. Uh, whenever you drive up the cost of energy, then you drive up the cost of everything because everything has to be shipped. Um, secondly, we need to phase out the deficit. The deficits increase the money supplies. There's more dollars chasing fewer goods, which leads to higher prices. Governments are competing with consumers for a scarce uh, supply of goods. Um, and so more money chasing those goods will always mean higher prices. Inflationary deficits drive up inflation and inflationary taxes drive up inflation. Why are taxes and deficits so high? Because spending is so high. And uh, I put forward a proposal to cap government spending with a pay-as-you-go law. This would require government find a dollar of savings for every new dollar of spending. That's how households work. You know, the Jones family uh, has $2,000 for recreation. They can spend it on a $2,000 porch or a $2,000 vacation, but they can't, do, they can't double their budget. So what do they do? They either pick between the two or they find a, de a deal on each, uh, but they have to live within their budget. The pay-as-you-go law would do the same. If a politician comes forward with a new spending measure of a million dollars, he'd have to go and find a million dollars of savings to pay for it. That would cap the cost of government. Um, and, you know, look, in the last uh, two years, the Trudeau government has brought in $200 billion of new spending measures that are not even linked to COVID. This is just total discretionary spending that is not core to government, nor is it related to COVID. But it's under the cover of COVID, is it not? No, is this that is not how the, they're justifying? No, no, the, 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 that's an addition to the $200 billion. They've done a half a trillion dollars total. 
The parliamentary budget officer said of the half trillion in new measures the government has brought in, about 200 billion was not COVID related. So if you had had a pay-as-you-go law that requires them to find a dollar of saving for every new dollar of spending, well, I suspect that much of that spending never would have happened. Um, and you can build into the law um, safeguards for, to uh, exceptions for wars or natural disasters or other national emergencies. Um, even if you had done that, though, we would have been able to contain the cost of government and we would have much lower inflation today. You know, you say the media never talked about it. Well, I was talking and predicting inflation back in spring of 2020 uh, because I saw the money printing. I was sitting there at the Finance Committee and we had the Bank of Canada coming in and saying they're going to increase the money supply by hundreds of billions of dollars. And I said at the time, every time, whenever this has been done, it has led to inflation. They said, all oh, this time is different. The bigger risk, they said, was deflation. Mm -hmm. And of course, I was right about that. And uh, my solutions now are the right ones, which is to say, get rid of the inflationary taxes and deficits, get the Bank of Canada back to its core mandate, which is stable prices, not funding government. Uh, and uh, we'll get costs under control so people can afford uh, to eat and heat and live their lives. In 2019, the Conservatives under Andrew Scheer at the time ran on a platform that included a balanced budget law yeah. that would have uh, bound the government to balance the budget within four years, I, I think it was at the time. Uh, obviously, spending has ballooned since then, before COVID, during COVID, uh, since COVID. Realistically, when would you balance the budget? And, and, and again, I'm aware that you've been left with, if you inherit uh, the reins of government, a significant uh, run of deficits that I think the worst estimates are to be 50 years before it can be paid off. But, but if a Conservative government comes in and wants to do this and fix it, when could that budget be balanced? Well, listen, I think of myself as kind of like a, a janitor, right? If, you, if I went up to a building and, and, and you said to me, how long is it going to take you to clean up the mess inside the building? Well, I'd have to say I have to go walk around the building and figure out how bad the mess is. Uh, we don't know how bad the mess will be when Trudeau leaves office. We won't know until we get closer to the election, um, but we could be two, three years away. So it would be very hard for me to tell you how bad the mess will be in two or three years and therefore how much longer after that it would take me to balance the budget. I'm not trying to be evasive. It's just that I don't know the, I don't, uh, you, no, nobody knows the magnitude of the mess that we're going to inherit. So I'm not going to make a promise right now on a time frame for a balanced budget because when I do make that commitment, I intend to hit it. Uh, so I have to be damn sure that I know what the, the numbers are before I, I start making promises. Do you support that law from 2019 that the Conservatives proposed binding future governments and, I mean, theoretically, your government to balance the budget? Yeah, I think outside of wars and recessions and national uh, emergencies, I don't see any reason why you should ever allow a deficit to occur. Would you include pandemic in those categories? I, if you, look, if there, you know, there's no question that we, 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 a deficit was unavoidable over the last couple of years, but the magnitude of our deficit was not unavoidable. We could have helped people get through the difficult times without, as I said, adding $200 billion of non-COVID spending to our uh, budget. Uh, and uh, we could be, we could have been on track to eliminate the deficit in the short to medium term had we 
showing some discipline. There's been a bit of animosity in this leadership race. I know uh, Jean Charest has said that your support for the convoy disqualifies you from being prime minister. Uh, Patrick Brown as well has, has made a lot of criticisms of you. Someone on your campaign, Jenny Byrne, accused him of being uh, perpetually dishonest. Would either of those men be able to stand as candidates under you if you're the leader? I don't think, uh, I, I wouldn't make a judgment on that right now, but I mean, Patrick Brown was denied the chance to even run for the PCs in Ontario because of his track record and his past ethical scandals. Um, he's got scandals that are erupting now at Brampton City Hall. Uh, I think he's tr had to su suppress the city council's ability to even hold meetings because they're worried that they might, he's worried that they might investigate the money that he spent on a non-existent university. Uh, so uh, frankly, um, I, I have a hard time uh, seeing why, I don't even know if, if, if conservatives would even be prepared to nominate him in any particular riding. But with what you've yeah. just said, why would you, would it even be a, a consideration then to sign his nomination? Yeah, I, look, I, I don't think Patrick Brown could get approved to be a candidate for any major national political party, given his track record of scandal. And Jean Charest, you've said he's a liberal. Obviously, he was the, the former Quebec liberal premier. Would he have a place on your team if he wanted? Ever, you know, I think he, he uh, Mr. Charest and I disagree on a lot of issues, but if he wants to play a role in, in the event that I'm blessed to win the leadership, I would welcome him and, and others to participate. Do you think that social conservatives, who uh, certainly now are, are always under the gun from the mainstream media, and you've said would have a place in your party, do you have a, a way to describe what that place would be? You, you've been clear that you would not vote for any legislation that restricts abortion, but, but what role would they have and, and could they be in your cabinet, for example? Well, listen, uh, social conservatives uh, have the, should have the freedom to speak their mind and uh, offer their perspective. Uh, I think that uh, there's a, lo a lot of overlap between small government, um, libertarian-minded people and social conservatives in the sense that they just want government to leave them alone. Um, people should have the freedom to raise their families with their own values, to preach their faith without censorship, uh, to protect uh, children against harm, uh, and uh, you know, act in countless other ways to, to, uh, to protect the autonomy of their families. And that is what social conservatives are fighting for. I'm being honest, I'm not going to pass an abortion law uh, when I'm prime minister. Uh, I, I support same-sex marriage. I think people should have the freedom to make their own decisions when it comes to whom they love and marry. Uh, that said, the social conservatives with whom I speak, uh, what they really want right now is for the government to leave them alone so that they can raise their own fam families and preach their own faith without interference or coercion. Leslin Lewis ha has brought forward, and she is a, an avowed pro-life candidate for leadership, what she believes is a, a moderate and widely palatable view on abortion. One of them is access to adoption and crisis pregnancy support centers and things like that. We've also had one of your colleagues in caucus try to restrict sex-elective abortion, Kathy Wagenthal. These things, if members of your caucus put them forward, you, you said you wouldn't pass them. Does that mean that you wouldn't personally vote for them or you would ensure they didn't pass? So so, you know, let's take the issue of adoption. I believe we should support adoption. I am personally adopted myself, and I believe that adoption is a wonderful gift by birth, by both the birth mother and the adoptive parents. Um, and uh, I think there's more we can do to make it to, to 
make it easier for women who want to bring a child in the world and put it up for adoption to uh, bear the obvious burden that comes along with it, whether it's the time, the way that, that they lose from their work, uh, whether and therefore the, the, the income that they lose, uh, whether it's giving more fairness under EI parental benefits, uh, or whether it's protecting the ability of not-for-profits to provide um, counseling and other supports, um, regardless of the political viewpoints they might have, they should be free to do that. Uh, so that's an area of common ground. I think, uh, frankly, I think all, all Canadians would believe that a woman who ch makes her own independent choice to put a child up for adoption should get support for that choice. Uh, and so that's an area I think we can find a lot of common ground uh, within our caucus. But on the caucus management issue, I just want people to understand yeah. what you mean when you say you will not pass something. Are you talking about how you will vote or, or what outcome you will ensure happens? Well, look, I think that the reality is that I, I don't think a bill of that uh, that would restrict or ban abortion would pass. And that is just an obvious fact. You've got, uh, and it didn't pass in 10 years as Prime Minister Harper was Prime Minister. Uh, he uh, had a majority even for four of those years and no such legislation passed. And that is why I think that uh, we should focus on doing things that help women uh, who are find themselves in a difficult uh, pregnancy but uh, who want, for example, to bring a child into the world. We can support them either to help them keep the child or put it up for adoption uh, without bringing in laws that restrict or ban abortion. We spoke a little bit earlier on about your rallies and you know the, the makeup of the Pierre Polyev supporter that you're yeah. meeting on the road. What do you find is the issue that people are most resonating with? And it perhaps might even be a surprising one to you given the things you have talked about, but what is it you find is, is that people are coming up and saying, I love your stance on X? Well, the, the number one uh, issue that young people bring up is the can't afford house. And uh, when I, like when I say, you know, everybody knows of the 35-year-old living in their parents' basement, uh, it's funny, there's always like three or four people in the audience that actually put their hand up. And sometimes it's the kid. They admit to it. But sometimes it's the kid, sometimes it's actually okay. the parent. And, uh, and so uh, we get these, but we have lineups because I invite everyone to come shake my hand after the rally's over and say a quick hello and tell me their thoughts. And uh, the most common story when I get a young person is I'm that guy or that girl who's 31, 32, stuck in my parents' basement because, uh, you know, I live in Brampton and it's a million two for your average house or, you know, 900 grand for a modest townhouse. And they, there's no way that they can come up with uh, the down payment, let alone the monthly uh, bills to, to pay for it. And so the fact that I talk about removing the gatekeepers to allow more housing construction, selling off 15% of federal buildings so that, they, that folks uh, can convert those into housing uh, or um, ending the money printing so that we no longer have this monetary inflation of our asset prices, these sorts of things connect with people because they see it playing out in their real lives. Pierre Polyev, thank you very much. Great to be with you. Thank you.
That was my sit down with Pierre Polyev in the Conservative Leadership Series. If you're enjoying this series and you want to see more of it, I know we're almost done, but we still could very much use your support. Head on over to donate.tnc.news, donate.tnc.news, and you can throw a few dollars our way as we are traveling around to meet these candidates where they are. And I've got a videographer with me. So there are certainly some costs in putting this together, but I also think these conversations are tremendously important, regardless of who you're supporting. And even if you're not voting in the leadership race, whoever wins this race is going to be vying to be Canada's next prime minister alongside the other party leaders. So certainly important to the Canadian political future, if I may say so here. So we do appreciate all of your support. We'll have this series wrapped up in the next couple of weeks or so, but I do hope you get a chance to watch all of the conversations just to see where the things are. And I had someone ask me if I'm going to be asking the same questions to all candidates. And I said, well, that would be no fun because by the time I get to the sixth one, they already know what the interview is going to be. So each discussion is very fluid. Obviously, we try to tailor it to what the candidates have said, but also, as I've mentioned before, what they haven't said. And I think that's oftentimes where some of the value comes from these conversations. But they are a lot of fun to do. Always good to do an interview that you aren't confined to like a three or four minute block on. So uh, the series continues. Stay tuned to The Andrew Lawton Show and lots of the other stuff we're doing over at True North. We'll talk to you soon on Canada's most irreverent talk show. Thank you, God bless, and good day to you all. Thanks for listening to The Andrew Lawton Show. Support the program by donating to True North at www.tnc.news.